and welcome to the Leading Through Uncertainty podcast series. I'm your host, Jude Jennison from Leaders by Nature, and I'll be interviewing leaders from different organisations and industries to find out more about the challenges they face in leading through uncertainty and how they overcome them. Today, I'm delighted to be talking with Elizabeth Cronin, who is the director at the New York State Office of Victim Services. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, Jude. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Lovely to have you on the show today, and thank you for agreeing to do this. Um, I'd like you, before I ask ask you any questions about uncertainty, um, I'd like you to just explain what you do at um, the New York State Office of Victim Services. Uh, The New York State Office of Victim Services is um, the little engine that could. It's uh, a really incredible resource um, within New York State that provides financial compensation to innocent victims of crime. Uh, We also fund victim assistance providers throughout the state of New York, and we advocate on on behalf of crime victims throughout the state. So... It's an incredible resource. It's a necessary component of a criminal justice response, um, and New York is really behind what we're doing here. Well, it sounds like everything you're doing is related to to uncertainty with uh, with the work that you're doing. And um, so, I'd like to start. Hey, most definitely. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'd love to start by hearing what what your current experience is of leading through uncertainty. Well, you know, the career that I've had um, has taken me through a variety of different disciplines, and um, each one has held a different challenge. And, you know, um, I've worked in county government, I've worked for the federal government, I've worked in private law practice, I'm a lawyer, I've worked in um, now the state system, and each system is very different, and Mm -hmm. learning how to lead an office or an agency in all of those different areas is very, very different. So the challenges that I find in working in state government are that, um, that I didn't experience when I worked, um, in other, other governments is that, um, we have a lot of, um, rules. We have a lot of civil service challenges. Um, so there are a lot of worker protections, which of course is necessary. Um, but as a manager, it requires a whole different skill set, and um, it's very human resources based. And um, for a leader, it's hard to um, often negotiate when you want to make a decision about how to handle a particular situation or uh, employee performance. But there are a lot of rules and regulations that have to be followed, and um, it's definitely a steep learning curve when you come into an environment like this in um, figuring out, you know, what those rules are and and how you can work within the the parameters of that. Okay, Um, and you say that it requires a lot of different skills. What, What do you think those skills are that you've gained by working in the public sector? Well, I think over time, um, I have gained a tremendous respect for people who work in the public sector. Um, I was speaking with a colleague yesterday, and we were laughing about, you know, if we took these management skills into the private sector, we'd probably be earning a lot more money than we are, Um, but that 
we just have a need to be doing this kind of work and helping people. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people like us in this field. And I, unfortunately, there's a perception that people who go into the public sector um, are doing it because they just want a nice pension and they don't work hard. Um, My experience has been the exact opposite. And some of the smartest and most dedicated professionals I have encountered in my professional life are here um, working in the public sector. So, um, you know, there's that perception um, of who we are, you know, and and why we're doing what we do. You know, I certainly agree with that in terms of the, you know, people always think that commercial is where it's at. um, But actually, without of all of all of the public sector, then all of the services that that we have don't get provided so so it really is crucial and and it's great to hear that there are some really talented people in that in that um in that area um there's a lot of talented people and there's a lot of vision and i think that is one of the things that maybe has surprised me the most is the level of um commitment by people in the public sector and the their uh, their vision for how they see the world and how they see advancement of their agencies and the work that the agencies are doing and it's incredibly inspiring and i think for me that's part of what my job is is to constantly be creating new ideas, innovation, um, and inspiring the people who work under me to um, to want to kind of go with me, you know, to this place um, that that I envision. So, how do we motivate them um, to want to help me? Um, realize this vision and I've just seen some really incredible leaders um, who have who have that that um, passion and desire to kind of move the field forward you know not to remain stagnant and just do the same thing all the time Mm. it's really inspiring to hear that because there's there's a tendency when I think of public sector and and forgive me for for having this view there's a tendency for me to think that it's um that it's providing a service and that it's responding to what's actually happening what I'm hearing from you is that um, far from just doing that you're actually creating a vision of how you want the world to be and what needs to happen to create that which is which is really inspiring to hear yeah, and you know there there is the element of stasis. You know, there's plenty of people, I guess, in in every walk of life who just want things to remain the same. But there are enough people who want to make a difference. Um, and you know, whether we're, I had a conversation with another colleague recently about, you know, do you think that the work that we're doing is making a difference? Because we're all really committed to doing that. And and I said, I, I don't know. You know, I hope so. Um, but when you help one person or you help one family, um, you feel like you're really moving the needle. And, um, and I think part of it, too, is making sure that your staff understands and is rooted in the mission of what you're doing. And, you know, a lot of people that work in my agency, they do, um, they work with very difficult issues, very difficult cases. They 
are dealing with people who are upset and traumatized. It can be very hard. The work that they're doing can, you know, sometimes seem um, the same, you know, and um, so part of, of my job and my executive team is making sure that they are always back to the mission. Like, why are you doing this? Right. You know, it's not just about processing something. It's like, why are you processing that? And um, I will have meetings with my whole office to say, you know, whether you are issuing a check or you're entering a claim or you're talking on the phone to someone, you know, every person here goes back to the mission. And um, we produced a, a series of videos for the 50th anniversary of this agency last year. And so I started an orientation program for new staff and, and we watched those videos and they're victims and victim advocates and um they're talking about how this agency has changed their life. And so I want new people coming in here to see that and say, this is why you're here, you know. Or if you didn't come here for that reason, you're going to get it when you're here because, yeah. you know, this this is what makes the difference is that, you know, every time you process that claim, that person gets assistance and it could change somebody's life. Yeah, right. And and in terms of, you know, what, what you're doing at the at the victim services is you're right at the sharp end of uncertainty, aren't you? Yes, always. And, you know, every case is different. Every person, you know, it's not just a claim. It's not just somebody, you know, going to get help. It's a person. It's a person with a history and a family and um, a circumstance, and we can't ignore that. Um, and, you know, it's um, from day to day, we never know what's going to happen. I mean, this agency has had to respond to some terrible, large events. You know, 9-11 is obviously um, one that comes to mind, mm -hmm. but um, there was a mass shooting in Binghamton, New York in 2009, where many people were killed, um, injured, traumatized. And so, you know, we had to be facile enough to respond to those kinds of things while still doing our regular work. And, um, you wow. know, we have to be, as executives, you have to be mindful that your staff is being traumatized. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I spent 14 years as a special victims prosecutor, so I was used to dealing with traumatized people. But at the time, in the 80s and the 90s, you know, nobody thought to that we might need help um but the field has changed and we're really recognizing that the caregivers need care and yeah. so we're doing a lot of training and offering uh, services to staff even to say we recognize that you're dealing with very very difficult things and that you need attention too um mm -hmm. that it's not just the victims that we need to focus on we need to focus on you yeah and and in terms of how that relates to some of the more uh, back office functions of your of your organization um where perhaps there may not be quite so much on the front line of experiencing the trauma but nevertheless they're a part of it and they're experiencing maybe their own trauma or their own life experiences how how do you right. how do you equip your organization to, to lead through uncertainty on a daily basis? 
Well, it's a really good point because, you know, people come to this work for a variety of different reasons. You know, they may come because of an experience that they've had, um, and we may not know that, you know, but we have to be open-minded and paying attention and listening. Um, you know, and you'll, we do a lot of cross-training with other agencies. So there's an agency that deals with domestic violence. We have them come in and do training um, so that if a staff member is experiencing that, they will know where services are. Um, and, you know, you have to have fun. So we try to have um, a lot of, of events in the office um, that are just silly, you know. Um, we'll have uh, chili cook-offs and bake-offs, and uh, I brought in Halloween candy today, even though it's August, you know, and just... <laughs> To say thank you to people, um, although I hope they don't, like, send me their dental bills, but, um, <laughs> you know, to say, like, I recognize that you're doing difficult work yeah. and um, that, you know, we recognize you got to blow off a little steam. And um, there's one staff member here who's fantastic who sets up um, events after hours like karaoke and bowling and things for staff that want to avail themselves of that. And, um, you know, it's really hard, as I said, in the public sector because of the rules. So we can't be as flexible as you can be in the private sector where I can't give people bonuses. I can't just let them take days off without charging time. You know, we're not allowed to do those kinds of things. So you have to be really creative in thinking of ways to honor the service of your employees um, while you're operating within the confines of your rules um, and letting them know that to the extent that you can, um, you know, like my executive staff during the uh, holidays will throw a big lunch and we have games and silliness, you know, and um, let everybody just have a good time and, um I have a meeting every year where all I talk about is good stuff. Like there's not a bad thing that, that I talk about and it's all, you know, calling out people who got an email from a client, you know, that they did such a great job and just really celebrating hmm. the work that everybody does to say, you know, and giving them little, you know, coffee cups with our, our, name on it and just things that people you know you don't realize people just appreciate being recognized sometimes yeah, yeah and I'm hearing you know a lot around um, celebration and, and having fun and it can be so easy to overlook those things when you know when your business is serious and when you've got challenges to right. to overcome it's very very easy to overlook having fun and lightening the the load for people and it sounds sounds like that that's a you know really important focus for you yeah, because you're not, you know, you don't want to um, miss the point of what we do, you know, to say, you know, this isn't all fun and games. This stuff is deadly serious. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, we're all human beings mm -hmm. and, um, you know, we have to have a way to just be lighthearted and, and, you know, recognize when somebody has a great event, they had a baby, or they got married, or, um, you know, they graduated from graduate school, or, you know, something um, to, to recognize, something outside of the, 
the work that we do. And, you know, we're also trying to find ways to get our staff out in the community more. So to do events where, um, you know, we want to get this agency out in the public view so that everyone knows about us and who who's better ambassadors than your staff you know um so we're we're doing a lot of that and they appreciate it too because then they feel valued well and i guess it's it's making sure that they stay connected to the the communities that they're that they're living and working with too exactly yeah okay and you mentioned also about um in terms of when I asked you about how you equip your staff, you said that there's a there's a lot of listening to each other. Um, I think listening is a very underrated skill. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what? How? How do you? How do you encourage and how do you? How do you train people in in listening? And I, I know that sounds a really odd question because everybody thinks that they're actually a very good listener, but actually most of us are quite poor at it. It's funny, yeah. I mean, one of the the reasons I, I went and got some coaching certifications um, when I was working in the federal government because I had a lot of young lawyers that work for me, and I felt like I needed better skills in in helping them. And one of the skills was listening. And as I think I probably interrupted you like four times, um, I'm always thinking, and so I'm always talking, and I I am guilty of it too. So. I went to train, um, I got a coaching certification, then I did the neuro-linguistic programming, which is a lot of somatic, you know, learning, and um, they were talking about that for coaches, one of the worst things, most uncomfortable feeling is when there's silence, and that we all try to fill silence with something whether it's action or talking, and that often the silence is where the work is being done. So that's where the person is thinking, you know, of how to respond to your question. And so, um, you know, we we talk with our staff when we're at meetings and stuff is about, you know, waiting till someone's finished, letting them get their thoughts out, letting there be some silence, um, and you know, letting people kind of churn their ideas um, over until they feel able to articulate um, an idea. Because, you know, for me, when you're at a higher level in an organization and you're not the boots on the ground, you're often not seeing what they are seeing. And so what I tell them is that I need to know what's going on where you are um, because you know, that will help me decide where we're going to go. And if I'm not willing to listen to that, then I'm not really serving the agency because then I don't know what's happening on the ground. And, um, you know, I have to know how to respond going forward. You know, who, what organizations do we need to be funding? What issues am I missing? Who aren't we serving in the victim community? You know, who needs our services and they're not getting them? Um, And I need to get that information from staff because they often are in the best position to provide that information. And when you, when you listen to them, they feel valued Mm. and then they're willing then, you know, to come forward um, 
and tell you things that you want to hear and sometimes things you don't want to hear. <laughs> and when I first started here, I had a big meeting with the staff and I said, listen, you know, when you come to me with a problem, that's fine because that's what I'm here for. But I want you to come with a solution. And even if it's not the solution that I ultimately am going to follow, I want you to have thought it through. Like, don't just come in and complain. You know, think about how we can make this better um, and how I can work with you to resolve this situation if possible. Um, and to always be challenging them to think. You know, critical thinking is something that lawyers do. That's part of our training, so that's what I'm used to. And that's a challenge, is getting people to think critically about um, an issue, you know, and to think it through. Don't just ask me the question, like, I don't know, you know, what do we do? Um, think it through, come up with a solution, work with me to make this happen or make it better. And do you think critical thinking is, is even more important when leading through uncertainty? Well, yeah, because um, you have to be able to assess um, a sort of the unknown. Mm. Um, you know, you know what you know, right? You know what you don't know. Um, and so um, we can't always know what we're going into, um, but we have to think it through and say, all right, what are the different um, options that may present themselves? So, for example, in dealing with mass casualties is a big issue that I'm focused on, and so we've collaborated with a lot of other states that have experienced tremendous trauma, like Newtown, Connecticut, um, the Boston um, marathon bombing. We've talked to our colleagues in Florida about the Pulse nightclub shootings and say, you know, we can't anticipate everything that's going to happen. Yeah. Um, but we have to be flexible and we have to be thinking about what might happen and how we would respond to it. So we got a committee here and we've worked with our um, Homeland Security office in, uh, in New York State and, um, you know, we we're working with the FBI and the state police and saying, you know, how can we be helpful um, to communities? How can we be fleet-footed and prepared for what we think might happen, um, and and then how will we be able to respond to something we never anticipated? You know, so um, how do you learn from the past? How do you learn from other people's experiences? And like we had a big meeting with some states to say, what did you learn? What mistakes did you make? And you know, how would you have done things differently? And so um, to get your staff to be thinking in a way of, um, you know, how, how can we work through these challenges and these problems, um, even though we can't anticipate anything, everything. So um, those situations are probably the most uncertain um, that we'll face, yeah. and we have to be ready. Yeah, and it's an interesting um, conundrum and, and also balance, isn't it, of, of um, how do you create certainty um, amongst the unknown? And, it, and it's one of the themes that keeps cropping up in, in most of the interviews that, that I've had with people so far is that when they're faced with enormous uncertainty, what they do is they, they look for 
um, what are the things that we can prepare for and and how can we create some level of certainty or some planning of some sort so that we've identified some of the risks and some of the things that we know we can do and and, and shouldn't shouldn't do um, so that the, the, the things that are truly uncertain the best you can do in those situations is is to lead isn't it it is to lead and to to feel prepared. Mm. You know, um, you may not have anticipated all the the consequences, but that you're prepared to to go into it. Um, and you know, I mean, even everyday things where somebody on your staff gets sick, yeah, um, and they might be very sick, and they're going to be out for a long time, or people will move on to a different job, and so you suddenly have this hole in your staff and so you you've got to be thinking constantly is you know n- not to be alarmist and and to constantly be focused on oh my god you know what happens if all these people leave but to be um able to you know respond to that knowing that it may not be an inevitability but it's a possibility it's Mm -hmm. always a possibility that um you know i had a staff person come on wasn't here very long got very sick and it's like okay i mean that's certainly not something you would ever um, anticipate so uh, you know how do we how do we deal with that how do we pick up the slack what and i think as a leader you have to be able to think through what is necessary to get the job done yeah. and what can you put aside as a non-priority um, or to to give to someone else to do temporarily so the work will get done. Um, and we're constantly having to think that way. Mm. You know, what, what absolutely has to get done? You know, checks have to get out the door, that kind of thing. Um, payments have to be made. So you say, all right, that's what we're going to focus on in other projects we always have a million projects going on here. Um, you know, let's say we're looking at our website. Well, that can go on the back burner. We don't have to do that now. We need people to focus on um, just getting the, the core work done. And so it, it's sort of being um, in that mindset all the time is um, what needs to, what has to get done in a crisis. Yeah, and there's, you know, there's a lot of... Um... You know, a lot of companies are talking about the need to be to be agile as leaders today. Um, it, it sounds like that's that's something that is at the very heart of your organisation anyway. How do you encourage people in the back office of your organisation to be more agile? Right, and that's the challenge, you know, is to um, say, all right, you've always made widgets, um, but today we can't make widgets. Like you have to do something else, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and I, I go back to that idea of um, investing people in your mission. You know, yeah. if they know that our mission is, you know, fundamentally to make sure that crime victims get what they need, then we're all going to band together to make sure that that happens. Mm-hmm. You know, so however we have to do that to um, to get the job done. Um, and then we'll go back to our normal lives, you know, when the crisis is over. Right. Okay. And what's your, what's your biggest challenge today? Uh, well, right now um, we have a, a significant amount of federal funding um, that we got to fund 
programs throughout New York. And so um, our challenge right now is identifying, and our focus is identifying um, who we're not serving, you know, what crime victims are not accessing services, and also we're focused on identifying innovative, um, evidence-based type practices mm -hmm. that um, that we can provide funding to. So we're doing a lot of work around that right now um, in, you know, seeing the need um, and then meeting the need. And right. also, um, I think one of the challenges, you know, for people who have been in the workforce for a long time is being able to evolve. Mm. And, you know, for me, when I started practicing law, you know, we had no computers. Mm -hmm. um, I My first job out of law school was writing decisions for judges on paper with a pencil. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we've come really far. And so it's also being open to technology and being able to um, listen to, to what's happening in the community and responding to it and um, being open, you know, and not thinking that, well, this is the way I've always done it and this is what I'm comfortable with. And I think you have to constantly be pushing yourself a little outside your comfort zone um, in order to grow. And so, you know, I find that I have to be doing that too. I have to be really open-minded and, um, and willing to keep on growing and not not stay with what I'm happy with and comfortable with. Yeah, and it's it's an interesting... And, and to try new things and fail, you know. Sometimes you try something and go, you know what, that didn't work. Um, yeah, and it's an interesting one, the, the, the whole comfort zone and, and failure, um, because in order to step out of the comfort zone and grow, we make mistakes along the way. Um, and yep. and often we're not allowed to make mistakes in organisations, so it's it's a challenge where... You know, how do you create a culture where people are encouraged to learn and grow and without making ginormous mistakes along the way that actually ultimately yeah. damage the organization? When I was a young prosecutor, I worked for um, a district attorney who was really quite amazing. And he really gave the prosecutors a lot of latitude and um, he would support us in trying Things and um, I was able to become a much better lawyer and a much better prosecutor because he would give you that opportunity and that latitude, and so you weren't as afraid, you know, um, of of trying something different. Mm -hmm. And um, and I learned a lot from that because I was young and you know I was in my twenties and and you know it was. Um, an eye-opening experience for me that, oh, this is the kind of boss I would want to be. Right. And I was lucky because throughout that the 14 years I was with the DA's office, um, I had supervisors who were in that same mold. And so they would encourage you, you know, to, um, to do things that you felt was right mm -hmm. and um, to take risks and... Um, it was it was a good learning experience for me right. that you know as long as somebody's not making the same mistake over and over again yeah. um, that people are going to make mistakes and one of the things that that I loved most about the NLP training was um, the the 
thing about um, there is no failure, only feedback. Mm-hmm. So, you know, your, your mistakes are what inform you going forward. And if you learn from it, then it's, it's a valuable exercise. If you keep committing the same error over and over again, then you're stupid. But um, oh, thank you. But you have to, you know, be willing to absorb a little um, pain when you're watching people go through that process. But as long as you're supporting them and, and, you know, they know that that you have their back and that um, as long as what they're doing is part of your mission and it's something that will help people, then, you know, oftentimes it's worth the try. Yeah, and it's a, you know it's a balance as a leader, isn't it? In in terms of how far do you let people make make mistakes and and learn and grow, and and how do you, you know, and and when do you step in and preempt them? And and I you know I always think it's a little bit like le- watching a, a toddler learn to walk. Is you know at what point yeah. do you step in and stop them from splitting their head open on a on a table, or versus you know do do you let them just fall over and learn and refine their balance and. <laughs> And I, there are no easy answers, I don't think, uh, you know, watching a toddler or, or leading an organization. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, I think a part of it is um, always looking at it through the lens of what's good for the agency, too. You know, yeah. so for me, I have to balance their um, their education with the good of the agency. So, right. you know, I wouldn't let them do something that I thought could at all harm the agency or the reputation of the agency or, um, but you know, if they, um, if there's a good basis for it and it's something that, that you think could have, you know, benefits, then, then you let them go ahead and try. Right. And, you know, I guess that's part of leading through uncertainty too, in terms of when you watch somebody do something that you think might not work, it actually might. Correct. And, um, you know, I think, too, that um, what what I used to tell people when I was coaching is um, listen to your gut Mm. Um, because it usually tells you something really important. And um, a lot of times I have found that when I ignore my gut because somebody else tells me this is the right thing to do and my gut is telling me it's not, Mm. that I'm sorry, you know, I didn't listen to myself because I was right. Right. And right for me, you yeah. know, it was it would have been the right thing for me. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I tell people that, you know, really listen to what's going on inside. Like we, I have an ethics officer here because, you know, as a public official, we're very concerned about making sure that we're in our ethical standards. And um, I'll come to him with something and he'll say, well, you know, what do you think? And I'll say, well, you know what I think because I brought it to you. And he said, then you know what to do. You yeah. know, if if your gut wasn't telling you maybe this isn't something you should do, you wouldn't have brought it to my attention. So, um, you know, we have to we have to pay attention to that stuff. We do. And, and again, it's, you know, we've put so much store in, in logic and reasoning and, and our brilliant minds that, that listening to the gut is something that is often overlooked, isn't it? 
It is. And, you know, I have the example when um, when I worked for the federal court system, we worked in lower Manhattan and it was 2001. And I just had a whole new staff of lawyers start their jobs. And then, um, you know, two weeks later, 9-11 happened. And it happened right there, right by us. Mm -hmm. And it was incredibly terrifying and traumatizing. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I didn't know these people. I had just I had hired them a year before. They had just started with me. Um, and so it was like, you know, after the initial, you know, we fled New York. And then, but when we had to get back to work, um, I thought these are all young people right out of law school. And, and um, how do I get them to even want to come back to work? Yeah. And, um you know, so I just listened, like, what did my gut tell me? So um, I had them all come to work one day, and I had a breakfast for them, and we just sat around and talked about it, about what happened, you know, and then I said, you're free to go. I just wanted them to cross the threshold of the building yeah, and come back to work and know that it was okay, and I made sure I came in and I made sure that all the offices were clean because a lot of windows were open, there was stuff all over the place, and so, you know, it was just like following, I guess, what I would want somebody to have done for me mm-hmm. um, is just making me feel safe and that it was okay, and every single person came back. And, um, you know, it wasn't like, all right, get back to work. I, I wanted to acknowledge the horror and the terror. I mean, it was, it was unspeakably scary. Um, and, and then say, okay, you know, we'll, we'll come back tomorrow. And, um, so it's just like learning through those events that have no, um, example, you know, I've Mm -hmm. never been through anything Mm -hmm. like that. Um, And, you know, just saying, okay, what, as a human being, what do I think is the best course of acting here? And And I think, um, I think that's the really crucial thing that it comes down to is that, you know, as a, as human beings, how do we manage our safety and, and how do we respond when there isn't a template for a situation you know whether it's a an extreme right. situation like 9-11 or just a change in direction of you know a business going up, launching a new product or whatever it is um there's no template for it so it comes down to you know what is it to be human and to navigate our way through that situation and I think also to make sure that they understand that somebody's in charge. Yeah. And not in a heavy-handed way, mm-hmm. but that, like, I've got this. Yeah. You're fine. You're fine here. I've got this. Yeah. I've got your back. I'm in control. You know, um, I mean, even the day that it happened, you know, here I've got people like, oh, my God, what are we doing? You know, we're it's blocks away from us and, um, you know, saying – being really calm, checking everyone's office, you know, being really methodical. Like I couldn't run out into the street um, because that doesn't show leadership. And um, did I want to? Sure. Um, But you can't. Mm -hmm. And so you, you have to 
say, you know, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in charge and everything's going to be okay and here's what you need to do and um, staying. I mean, we, we had so many events in the city from the blackout to the transit strike to Hurricane Sandy, you know, that we were constantly <laughs> being barraged with events that were so far out of our control and then figuring out how to keep people informed because I think that's something that sets in panic if they don't know what's going on is to constantly be staying in touch with people and doing business as usual to the extent that you can. So when we had Hurricane Sandy, we were out of our building for two weeks, but um, I wanted to keep us operating so... I had my administrative manager staying in touch with people constantly um, through texting and emails and phone calls and whatever means that we could. Um, and, I mean, we had people working all over the place mm -hmm. um, because they couldn't get into work, and we still managed to get the work done. Right. And I think for a lot of people, it made them feel secure that um, they had a purpose and, you know, somebody was watching out for them and letting them know everything that was going on and, and everything was going to be okay. And it was. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's just, I think that's part of what I see leadership as is just making people understand that everything's going to be okay um, yeah. to the extent that you can do it, you yeah. know. Wow, it sounds like um, you're you're the master of leading through uncertainty, Elizabeth. And, and you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't mean to kind of, you know, um kind of patronize you with that but genuinely um the the situations that that you and your organization have found yourselves in and and will continue to do so i'm sure we'll um we'll, we'll stretch all of you as as leaders and it's it's really fascinating to to hear how you're responding to that and how you're navigating that externally but also internally as well yeah, I'm I'm learning every day. You know, yeah. I never stop learning, mm -hmm. and um, I think when you do, then it's time to move on. Yeah, true. Um, yeah, and I appreciate your willingness to be interested. You know, in hearing about a, a kind of a different kind of organization mm -hmm. um, where mm -hmm. we have many of the same challenges, but different ones as well. Yeah, and I, you know, I. In listening to you, what what I'm what I'm sensing is that how much the, um, you know, corporations and the commercial side of business could learn from, um, the experience that that you and the and the people in your organisation are are really living and breathing, staying grounded, yeah. creating a place of safety, listening, you know, all of the things that are needed to to navigate uncertainty. You're you're living and breathing yeah, it. Thank you. And yeah. um, is there anything that you think we haven't covered that is related to uncertainty that you think is important to to mention? No, I, I think we've covered pretty much the panoply of, of at least the leadership knowledge I have. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I guess I would I would just mention that um, people end up getting promoted mostly into management positions. That seems to be the only upward mobility in many organizations. And um, my experience has been that people are woefully either unprepared for it or unsuited to it. Right. And so maybe we need to pay more attention to making upward trajectories that 
um, are based on something other than management. And um, some people are incredibly smart and good and wonderful and are not good people persons um, and, you know, don't want to be a manager, aren't going to be a good manager. Um, and so we have to think differently about that. But I think also for those who we are going to promote that we have to do a better job of making sure that they have the skill set and that um, not only for their growth, but for the people that they're going to be managing. Um, there's a lot of challenges that you take on, especially when you're a peer who becomes a manager, yeah. and that we have to be really cognizant of how we um, prepare them for all of those things and that they have the tools and the skills and the training to make them feel comfortable and competent um, in what they're doing. Because if they don't feel comfortable and competent, they're going to make a lot of mistakes and yeah. then that's just going to lead to ugliness and problems. And it, and also stress because when people feel... And a lot of stress. Yeah, when they're so far out of their comfort zone, people hit stress and overwhelm. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, most definitely. Well, and I, I felt that in every job I've taken, you know, where you have a whole different set of people and dynamics and, and, you know, you're back to the beginning. And even though you have all this work history and experience and training and education, you're back to the beginning in a lot of ways. Yeah. And so, you you know, you go right back into that. And, um, you know, it's, it's also about, um, I was thinking, I used to teach college at night. I was an adjunct professor. And... The one thing that I learned very quickly is that they need to know who the boss is in the classroom, mm-hmm. and it's very easy for teachers to get. You know, I was thinking about when you were using the, the talking about the horses. Um, kids are the same way, and so they know exactly when they smell blood and who they can get things over on. And um, you know, I, I think I was a successful teacher because. I liked what I was doing, um, but I also let the kids know, like, how far they could go. And um, they knew when they couldn't push any farther, you know. And and, um, I think it's the same way in any management experience is that you can be fun and you can laugh and you can um, talk to people about their lives and everything else, but in the end they need to know who yeah, the manager is. yeah, it's boundary setting, isn't it? It's being clear about where yeah, where the boundaries so. are. Yeah, like with your kids. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Great. Well, listen, Elizabeth, it's been fantastic to to talk to you. Um, I think you've given us a you fascinating too. insight into into uncertainty, um, right at the sharp end of of uncertainty with the with the victim services that you're providing. Um, so, thank you very much for your time. Uh, thank you. Well, I can't wait to listen to your podcast and also to read your book. Wow, wasn't Elizabeth inspiring? I particularly liked the way she recognises the need to balance the seriousness of the work they do with a light-hearted approach as well. Elizabeth really sees the importance of treating her team as human beings, just as much as the people they serve with victim support services. And I think that's often overlooked when people are working under pressure. It's easy to forget that everyone's human and struggling with their own pressures and deadlines. So whatever industry you're in, I'm sure there's always more humanity that you can bring to business. That's it for this podcast. I was your host, Jude Jennison from Leaders by Nature. Keep leading and I'll come back soon with the next interview on Leading Through Uncertainty.